Cox. I'm one of the founding members of the American Cannabinoid Clinics up in the Portland, Oregon area, and I've been involved with basic cannabinoid medicine for no more than four years. It's been a fascinating journey. So I'm happy to be here to moderate this excellent panel. I'm I think I'm just going to let my panelists uh, introduce themselves uh, in order here. They give you a little better view than I can give you myself. So. Start with yeah. me. Yeah. Introduce, yeah. Just introduce. Okay. Uh, my name is Meva Singh, and uh, if you have some question or discussion regarding the drug delivery system or cannabinoid with respect to cancer treatment, I'm the person to answer as much as I can. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is uh, Jakuba Zuburgos. I'm a, a tenured professor, also entrepreneur, and do research with um, cannabinoids in the lab and also cannabis products in the, in the field and in the stores. So I think uh, a broad range of uh, questions could be directed to me. Thanks for being here. Hi, my name is Wesley McGuire. Um, I have the distinguished position of being the only non-doctor on this panel. Um, I'm an analytical chemist uh, for uh, Tentamus North America, and my background is in residue testing. I'm here to talk mostly about the regulatory environment around safety and toxicity testing for CBD drugs. Hello, my name is Dr. Cardiomet. Alif, I'm a medical doctor trained at Stanford in clinical pharmacology, anesthesia, and was also part of the MD-PhD program in cancer biology. And prior to that, I did my undergrad work at Harvard in medicinal chemistry, medicinal organic chemistry. So I started out with uh, botanical medicine research about 40 years ago as a sophomore in college. And uh, at the time, cannabis wasn't really allowed, but the concept of working with natural products wasn't anything special because all chemistry and drug development started with natural products. It wasn't until this kind of divide that happened in the 80s or 90s that people started thinking that some things were organic and other things were patentable and that sort of thing. So that's my primary area of focus is efficacy and product formulation and delivery, bioavailability, those sorts of things. All right. Um, I think that uh, you all agree that uh, cannabinoids are really fascinating molecules. Uh, they're different than most pharmaceutical drugs because they really don't bind to a single target in the body. Uh, I think this contributes significantly to uh, the complexity of studying it, uh, you know, particularly for therapeutic effects. So there, there are just so many variables. We generally uh, think about the endocannabinoid system as uh, consisting really of the ligands, uh, anandamide, uh, 2-AG, uh, the cannabinoid receptor, CB1, CB2, uh, and then the degradative uh, enzymes, uh, FAAH in uh, particular. Uh, so to start the discussion, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about how CBD works in the endocannabinoid system? It's open to the panel, whoever likes to. So, as you have just mentioned, there is the endocannabinoid system, and the targets for the endocannabinoids, the cannabinoids produced inside our body, would be the cannabinoid receptor, CB1 and CB2, primarily. However, there's also endocannabinoids will target other receptors. Uh, they will target uh, TRPV1 pathway, which is transient receptor potential of aniloid, one, which is in, involved in pain modulation. It also has a much higher affinity to serotonin receptors. So it will bind with lower affinity, which means you will need less concentration of CBD to bind to serotonin receptors versus a higher concentration of CBD to actually bind to cannabinoid receptors. And um, now, If we also think about the diversity of the targets that we have in the body. So CBD, in a way, is a promiscuous molecule. And it will bind to the receptors in the brain. It will bind to the receptors in the immune system, in the kidney, gastrointestinal tract. 
and um, uh, it's important to pay attention also. Serotonergic pathways involved in regulating your appetite, your intake, your sleep, and activation of serotonergic pathways by cannabinoid could potentially contribute to regulating all of these aspects of the body. And finally, to complicate things even more, the endocannabinoid system is very tightly linked with the neuroendocrine system. Uh, neuroendocrine system is a system in the brain that essentially releases and regulates hormones throughout the body. And so this interaction of endocannabinoids, even from the brain, can affect the entire body on its own, as well as with the interactions with the neuroendocrine system. I think that uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, we, uh, you think about a lock and key mechanism when you're talking about neurotransmitters, but uh, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, CBD is not recognized to be a direct cannabinoid receptor agonist, uh, but it, it has more indirect uh, action. Anybody can talk to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, I think uh, what has been explained is wonderful, but what has not been explained, that's more important. And to me, I'm trying to understand how this molecule is being so wonderful to treat cancer. And that is still open question to the scientific community. It's not that it's a kind of a dream or a myth, no. There are thousands and thousands of people who has been using this to treat their cancer. What is the mode of action? What kind of uh, system is involved in that? We know all we, that it is very strong anti-inflammatory, but that still pathway is very unknown. So down the road, I hope some of the universities which are supposed to have this kind of fundamental research for many other, this should also be included in that and I don't know when government is going to give funded for this and we will be able to have some answer for this. It's not totally unknown, but very little is known. Hi, um, I'd like to uh, provide a little bit of an alternative perspective. Uh, one, to directly answer the question, the function of CBD within the body appears to be to modulate the tone of the endocannabinoid system whereas THC tends to be, if you will, more of a stimulator of the endocannabinoid system. And of course, when we say endocannabinoid system, we actually have very little idea what we're talking about um, because it's something that's newly discovered. Keep in mind that anything that we might say about the science, we've discovered because of people, and the people have discovered it because of naturally occurring compounds. Um, so cannabis is a plant, opium is a plant, coca is a plant, and these plants have taught us a great deal. We wouldn't know there was an endocannabinoid system without cannabis. And much of the, uh, what we know about cannabis really comes from anecdotal, lay, and recreational use of cannabis. Okay, as much as people might want to marginalize the recreational community, we wouldn't have any propositions that legalize the product if it wasn't for people illegally and illicitly and all sorts of other uses, because that's where the big population is. I work with uh, little old ladies that have rheumatoid arthritis, but there aren't tens of thousands of them to lobby uh, the government in order to change the laws. Personally, even though I have the training in all that space of receptors and clinical pharmacology and all of that, I don't regard uh, targets uh, in the body as being of primary importance. What I regard as being of primary importance is the human experience. And uh, when we understand what the human experience is, then we can go and look at the similarity, the pattern recognition associated with the targets, because the targets and the pathways are all incomplete and they're all partial understandings. And if you drive the research with other research, uh, then you miss the point. Uh, luckily with cannabis, the majority of cannabis experiences, as I said, is lay anecdotal human experience. And that, because we have great computing power now beyond any single human brain, we can put a lot of that information together and be able to understand what's really going on uh, with the endocannabinoid system before we begin tampering with it, like pharmaceutical companies have done so much in the past and cause untold damage. I think 
good. Uh, I've received the question, so we can get through this here. Um, uh, basically, in, in developing pharmaceutical products, uh, uh, medical chemists uh, manipulate the compounds. They're trying to increase the activity and selectivity and hopefully attenuating uh, unwanted side effects. Uh, so how does the complexity of the uh, endocannabinoid system as well as the complexity of a whole plant cannabis affect this method or approach to developing cannabis for use as a medicine? Can I, can I go first? Yep. Okay, so here's the thing. Probably, you know, some percentage of the people in this room have tried cannabis before in some form or another, and if you haven't tried it directly, you've at least observed its effect on other people. So it's psychotropic. It changes the way people think, and that's the effect of cannabis within the pharmacology space because it's not a linear lock and key traditional uh, pharmacologic mechanism. It makes it very difficult to have uh, linear cause and effect relationships. So when you're dealing with a system, and you're putting a system into it, you're putting like say whole cannabis into that system, then you have two systems interacting, neither of which are controlled. Um, and so that's why I say it's very important to use an entire human or at least an entire animal in order to assess what's occurred. So as a medicinal chemist, I have done that work of taking molecules that are pre-existing or naturally occurring and attempt to modify the structure. Primarily the intent for modifying the structure is to have a patentable molecule that allows you to have a blockbuster drug. But secondary to that, you have the opportunity to, as Dr. Knox was saying, modify effects. The problem is, is when you have a systemic uh, agent that's affecting an entire system and not just a single receptor in an isolated part of the body, you don't know what sort of collateral effects there will be and they end up being written off as side effects and you can hear those side effects when you watch television and listen to the commercials and they list very quickly what the side effects are. So manipulation of the molecule can change the solubility. Lots of people are trying to change from fat soluble to water soluble because our culture has an aversion to fat. However, fat solubility is the gateway to the brain and also to isolation in tissues, and especially since many people are using CBD for localized issues uh, like localized joint inflammation and pain, the lipophilic or the fat-soluble nature of it is actually an advantage. So in that process of changing the molecule, yes, uh, but what are, the, what are the tenets that drive that intent to modify it? Um, hopefully people will continue to pursue and fund whole cannabis, uh, full or broad spectrum uh, research so that at least there's a fundamental understanding of what's actually going on with cannabis and not selecting out molecules as though we know what we're doing. Uh, I think uh, I can add into it a little bit more. Uh, your question was pharmaceutical industries, uh, how they can pursue this. Uh, this is not the first time that uh, some molecule is there uh, in the show, it has been there many, many times. So many drugs are there in the market which has been identified in the plant and then they manipulate their own modern science and make into a drug. Paclitaxel is one of them. First it was a plant from Texas and then pharmaceutical industry always like to see is there money or not money. If there is money, they will work, otherwise they don't want to work. That's the, that's the nature of that business and nothing wrong in it. There should be some motive to accomplish something and motive for them to make more money. So similarly, uh, what they get at Paclitaxel from Taxol, they have, I think, uh, more than 10 drugs. They manipulate the TSC molecule for various uh, condition in the nervous system, but as doctor said, they all accompany with so many side effects. So uh, there's nothing perfect in this world. You gain something, you lose something. Yeah. In that case, it's a wonderful thing. They know 4.5 milligram is going to take care of this one disease. Wonderful thing. We know that, that they're going to use. And then wonderful thing, if you take this, this is going to happen bad to your body. Are you ready? Now you have to compare. You want to live with this disease or you can live with these side effects. It's your decision. They're not forcing you to do that. And similarly, uh, 
but the unfortunate part in this THC has been identified and been studied a lot by the pharmaceutical industry because there was a lot of money. But CBDs to me look like even a newer molecule, which is very uh, probably it's a small baby, nothing much known to the pharmaceutical industry. But when it comes to higher dose to treat some diseases where you need more, TSC is not an option. TSC is a good option if it's like not make you that much stone that you can live with. CBD, yes, you can go up to even 500 milligram to 1,000 milligram. So this is a better option if I have to follow some cancer treatment and people are using it. I, I know many, many patients who has been rejected by the hospital, go die two years back. Even after two years, they are on this CBD, not THC, and they're still alive. And when they call me, they feel very happy. Thank you. They're blessing me. So something is unknown, which has to be known to make best use of this molecule. Thank you. I think I'd like to also add, but um, maybe um, think about it this way. Medical cannabis, CBD are different, right? CBD is not going under the medical cannabis rules. So it's a food item. It's a food supplement. It should be in the diet. It should be in the food chain, starting from the feed to the table, to topicals, to medicines, to everything else. So that's, that's one comment. So CBD doesn't really fall under the medical cannabis regulations. We have to distinguish that. The second thing that we have to realize is that the 21st century is a century of the paradigm shift. The paradigm is shifting to the sense that you have the pharmaceutical companies, but you also have medical cannabis. Medical cannabis is going to cause the paradigm shift. Pharmaceutical companies are already developing plant-based medications, uh, and they already started investing in medical cannabis companies. So I think it's a matter of time. It is dependent on profitability, uh, risk and regulations, and export, import, and things like that. But already the sign is that THC is on Schedule 1, Marinol, and other uh, synthetic-based THC medications are on Schedule 2 and 3. Epidiolex, which is CBD, is uh, most likely going to be scheduled for Schedule 4. Mm -hmm. So once again, it's, it's not the same. I think that CBD is a great opportunity for pharmaceutical companies to jump in. And I'd also like to make a comment that, in my opinion, I think every product and every approach needs to be tested. I am a proponent of full plant medicine and entourage effect. Mm -hmm. I also realize that isolates have their own place and their own benefits and their own products, and they will find a consumer to whom an isolate-produced product is going to be better than a full uh, plant extract. So realizing that this interaction between the two systems, the endocannabinoid system with the human system and the plant, it's just something that's coming back to the 21st century, something that was taken away from us 100 years ago from the diet and from the medicines. We were, in fact, co-evolving these two systems over the uh, centuries. The endocannabinoid system was, and the human system was co-evolving with the recreational use of hemp for housing, for clothing, recreational housing, recreational clothing, recreational foods, and medicines. Um, so realizing this paradigm shift, I think understanding that full spectrum is very important, mm -hmm. but every product, I believe, and every preparation will find its own end user to the best benefit. Yeah, I think you were anticipating my next questions here. Uh, you know, we're expecting that uh, pharmaceutical CBD will be legal and FDA approved. Um, and uh, so I wanted to discuss uh, the products that are currently on the uh, market and, you know, how they are similar or different. And, uh, you know, uh, when you look at these products, is there any increased benefit or problems in comparison to uh, whole plant-derived uh, products? So uh, uh, medical research, again, is not my area of expertise, but one thing I can tell you as an analyst who's worked on uh, cannabinoids a fair amount, that the uh, cannabis plant matrix is incredibly complex. And we like to, to talk a lot about the entourage effect and the effect of whole plant medicine. Uh, and as several of us have noted, 
Uh, we're mostly working with anecdotal experience here because there has been for a long time a moratorium on the ability to do research on cannabinoids. So given the diversity of the experiences that are reported by people who have used uh, cannabis and related products as medicine, uh, the, the biggest danger that I see in adapting our current pharmaceutical approach to cannabinoids is uh, that we are going to focus on isolating uh, individual molecules because they're marketable, because we can make money off of them, uh, and looking at their individual effects without necessarily uh, taking a look at some of these minor components that may be coming into play and creating a holistic effect for the people who are using these medicines. I'd say, yeah, you saw me shaking my head. I agree completely. Um, in uh, ancient Persia, um, they had medical universities and medical system. One of the aspects of that, mentioning, referring to the paradigm shift that is coming, um, is that basically medicine in some ways in ancient Persia was like crowd crowdfunded. It was kind of like uh, Twitter and and Instagram and Snapchat and uh, Snapchat and Facebook in the sense that in major population centers uh, there would be a book in the middle, you know, by the well or some sort of thing like that. And people were allowed or even encouraged to come in and write down what their experiences were. You know, a mother of three children has had experience with treating these fevers and she's used fermented goat milk that was mixed with whatever, okay? And so she would write these things down. There was no need to disparage anyone's uh, individual experience and call it anecdotal uh, just because they believe in aliens or something. It, it doesn't matter. Human experience is human experience. What the Hakims would do, the Hakims were, that's the word for a physician and professor from that time. So you can you imagine like say four or five department heads from the major medical schools traveling around the country and reviewing these books on a regular basis to see what's in this book, what's in this book, what's in this book. And then they would gradually start to see patterns. Well, you know, this same thing that worked, you know, over in Shiraz is working over here and is working over here. So we, we should take that forward and study it. But now we have a context in which to study it because we understand basically what the dosage range was, what the experience was, perhaps what side effects were. To me, the useful part of science is if we're going to generalize results to a larger population, then you want to have certain objective guidelines, statistical significance, and blindedness because people have a tendency to favor their own preferred outcomes. But that's not the place that it should start. It needs to start with human experience. So part of the paradigm shift is Facebook, is Snapchat, is marijuana being legal. So everybody in this room is part of the research team. And just like on Wikipedia, so you know, ancient Persia had Wikipedia already, right? And so then people that are really paying attention, that are nerdy enough like me to stay up till three in the morning and read through individual experiences and individual techniques and people on blog boards that are saying they extracted cannabis at home with, you know, vinegar or something, who knows? And just to see where is there a thread of continuity? And then to try to bring those threads together into an understanding that then you can test later. So that way you're not forsaking the system for the singularity. You're not favoring reductionism, which a reductionism requires us to ignore certain things like certain constituents in the plant. Holism, as people call it, um, says take everything as a whole. If you want to be more intelligent, do you ignore things, which leads to ignorance, or do you include everything and achieve an understanding of it. That's where the genius opportunity is. And so it's great that we have a community around cannabis, and it's not just a bunch of people waiting for the trickle down from universities uh, to the drugstore. So to me, this is an important model to take forward as far as understanding what works for people, whether it's cancer, whether it's uh, anxiety, depression, any application. Uh, there are too many variables to reduce it to characterize a single molecule. You know, and it was mentioned about the research not having been done as much on CBD as THC. I'd just like to throw in this point. THC 
is not necessarily what people think it is. You know, in the, in the process of the paradigm shift, allow yourself to perhaps change your mind about everything because there's a fair amount of evidence uh, that THC doesn't actually get you high. The problem is in our culture, we have an issue with people that smile when there's no reason to smile. You know, somebody's, you know, they got a D in chemistry or whatever and they're still having a party. You know, that sort of thing is very antithetical to our society. Um, but having uh, trained in anesthesia, uh, which is an unusual specialty compared to the other specialties in medicine, but part of what we focus on is consciousness. And we focus upon changes in levels of consciousness within a person, um, all the way from stages of sedation and then also stages of anesthesia. The rest of the world tends to either consider you to be sober or intoxicated. Right? You're either awake or asleep, but there are lots of levels in there, and that's where microdosing comes in. But the, the point is, is that in the early phase of partaking of cannabis through a rapid route like inhalation, there is a phase that's euphoric, okay? We talk about CB1 receptors. We talk about anandamide being an endogenous CB1 uh, agonist. Uh, saying that it mimics THC or THC mimics that, but anandamide doesn't get people high. So there's space in there where THC could be leading into euphoria and relaxation, just like when I put in an epidural in a pregnant woman who's been in labor for 10 hours, she becomes euphoric. Okay, there's nothing in that drug that is supposedly psychoactive. So part of euphoria is just being relieved of pain, anxiety, fear, and stress. And if we don't dissect that out judiciously and scientifically and we just say, oh, see, they're already high, then we're missing this part. The reason I mention it is because THC in the body, in the blood, passes through the liver, gets metabolized to 11-hydroxy-THC. And some studies from way back in the 1970s show that if you administer 11-hydroxy-THC directly, it seems to mimic the intoxicating part of the cannabis high. Not just the, not the euphoria part, but the part that seems a little bit psychotropic, delirium, uh, cognitive impairment, short-term memory loss side. What that means, and the reason I mention it is, with the appropriate formulation by availability and delivery system, it may be able to separate out those effects that ultimately cannabis, even though it's Schedule One, doesn't actually have any psychotropic, if you will, molecules inside of it. There's no THC, hardly any THC in cannabis, fresh cannabis. And the THCA doesn't get people high, okay? And if the THC itself is just leading to euphoria and relaxation and not intoxication, we may have misjudged cannabis mm -hmm. as, a, as a drug as well as we've misjudged the users. So that for me is an area that I'm very focused on, the 11-hydroxy, because I have delivery systems that look to divide out that effect. So as the doctor mentioned with the cancer patients, you may be able to elevate someone's THC dosage to 200 or 400 milligrams without them losing cognitive function. All right. Uh, just to expound a little bit on, uh, you know, the development of like individual molecules or isolates, uh, um, uh, I think past experience has revealed there's been significant problems, uh, you know, when they developed a product with a specific therapeutic intent, uh, but then it was uh, found to have unsuspected uh, uh, side effects. Uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, Ramanabent, uh, supposed to help with appetite, it ended up causing severe depression and suicidal activity. Uh, and then they had this recent study with an FAAH blocker uh, that uh, they thought would be beneficial. Uh, phase one trials, they had three deaths in their study population with uh, healthy adults. So the, the question is, uh, um, is, is there a big risk in trying to isolate or develop these synthetic molecules that affect the ECS? Uh, you know, the resulting effects uh, can be so wide-ranging because our ECS is so, you know, wide-ranging. Uh, how do you see getting past some of those problems? Actually, uh, we can take one example to clarify this question or elaborate this into further. Yes, of course, it's a hit and trial method. When you develop a drug, it's not a one-day job or one month, one year. It takes 10 years maybe sometime and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars before you select one molecule. But if we 
if we learn from the experience uh, from the past drug development which, uh, which originate from plants, so if we follow that path, maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a more successful route and we should expect less side effect. And Paclitaxel, again, the same example. They took the raw material from the plant and then they call it semi-synthetic. But some of these CBD molecules, what I see in the market, they started right from the phenol ring type of totally chem chemical. So to me, as a scientist, I should expect more side effect if I started with the dangerous molecule rather from the plant-derived molecule. So if I have to invest some money, invest some time, I will start that natural molecule and modify it to, in such a way that the end molecule is a monomer and it's well characterized and that, that's easy to follow up. I, um would like to mention, I have a little bit, like I mentioned, because of being an anesthesiologist, a slightly different perspective. Um, in anesthesia, we treat one patient at a time, and we start from the beginning to the end of the case. We take the person all the way through. Um, usually in medicine, people are managing 15, 20 patients at the same time. Uh, also, we give the drugs that we prescribe, and we observe the effect, and we know what the outcome is. And if things don't work, uh, everybody points at us. I'm a very risk-averse person. Uh, I don't accept the idea that in the process of finding the right drug, some people will commit suicide, other people will have liver, liver failure, other people uh, will have a stroke or go blind. That for me is an unacceptable route. And when you uh, consent somebody for anesthesia, you're supposed to mention that there's a one in 10,000 risk of death through a bunch of different causes. And I always used to think about that when I was uh, in training and talking to people because it sounds pretty marginal, but when you're a person, you know, my mother died of cancer when I was 11, and the chances of her dying of cancer didn't really matter because she died. Death is a one in one probability. So that one person who's right there, it's either they're going to do okay or they're not gonna do well. Hippocratic Oath first, do no harm. So my personal uh, concern is allowing that risk. If you have volunteers that are willing to die for the cause, then that's fine. And much of the time, clinical trials, the volunteers for those clinical trials are not people that work at Intel and Universal Studios. They're often people that don't have jobs and they rely on clinical trials uh, to uh, supplement their income. So. For me, it's very important if there is a pathway that already exists that it does not incur the same sort of risks as uh, prior pathways, then that for me is a favorable uh, pathway. But you know, for other people, there is an expediency um, and part of that is pain and suffering and part of that is financial. And those people take those risks. So I, I just wanna reveal my bias that I'm very much not in that direction of uh, accepting those sorts of risks. I have a few comments, if, if you don't mind. Um, so if you, we come back a little bit on pharmaceutical industry, they're behind alcohol and tobacco. So alcohol and big drink companies and tobacco already invested in medical cannabis and CBD and drinks are probably gonna be a big thing with CBD. So it's a matter of time. The second thing, the anecdotal evidence of full spectrum versus isolate. So there's really beautiful studies emerging from Israel, clinical studies comparing CBD versus the full spectrum extract and showing that there is this biphasic effect. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, where essentially CBD works pretty well. And if you raise the concentration, the effect of CBD may go away, the therapeutic effect, until you raise it again much, much, much higher this biphasic effect. And that is not observed with a full spectrum plant. You can raise the concentration of CBD with also other molecules in it, and you will not see this biphasic effect. So therapeutic effect will be more linearly scaled with uh, full plant extract versus the CBD, which will have this biphasic drop. Then the other thing we have to look into is what is in the current pharmaceutical medications. 
It's already an entourage medication. Sativex is one-to-one -one THC to CBD for a reason. It's not just THC, it's not just CBD. It also contains ethanol, propylene glycol, and peppermint oil. Peppermint oil is a great carrier for cannabinoids. So it's likely it's there for a reason too, not just for taste. What is in, in THC and CBD about 2.4, 2.7%, 1-1. A pedialex is 10% CBD in sesame oil, ethanol, sucralose, and strawberry flavor. Doesn't sound like a cannabis product really. It just sounds like an isolate with a whole bunch of uh, flavorings added to it. So this is what's in the current medications now that are plant-based medications. And there's also a medication in Holland called Bedrocan. Miraculously, the flower of um, uh, cannabis that Bedrocan uses produces dronabinol, believe it or not. It's possible for a plant to produce a synthetic me uh, molecule, but that somehow dronabinol is on the market, actually can be bought in Europe under the Compassionate Act and shipped uh, from Holland to different places. Finally, if we come back to CBD and the expo part, which is a little bit of a business part, it's important to keep in mind that the companies that are making isolates now, that are making um, distillates or powders, that they also look into becoming an API, approved pharmaceutical ingredient manufacturer. Because um, I have no doubts that not only the tinctures and the creams, but the pharmaceutical companies are going to come after the APIs in large quantities in the near future. So that's from the business perspective. Absolutely. Um, wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, you know testing and uh, you know concern about uh, uh, toxins and uh, that type of thing. Um, Right now, botanically sourced drugs are really not subject to uh, residue tolerance regulations that are set uh, for food and other consumables by the EPA. Uh, the U.S. Pharmacopeia, however, has developed guidelines for plant drug residue testing to help ensure the safety of patients uh, using these products. Uh, so what standards are applicable to herbal materials and why should these standards be in place for cannabis specifically? Well, this is certainly my area of expertise. Uh, it, it's important to note that we're talking about a couple of different things here. Uh, we're, we're speaking about botanically derived drugs, medicines, versus uh, those same compounds used as medicine but developed through a synthetic pathway. And there's a fundamental difference between drugs that are uh, developed through organic synthesis versus uh, extracted from uh, plant sources, and that is the uh, potential for dangerous residues is entirely different. Uh, so uh, Dr. Singh mentioned that he has a greater trust for uh, a molecule that's derived from a natural source rather than synthesized from a, a base carbon skeleton. Uh, and there's some logic behind that because as you go through the drug, uh, synthesis process, there are going to be uh, impurities left over from each step of the synthesis that could potentially create side effects. Now, uh, in uh, drug development uh, in U.S. pharmacopoeia, uh, we have regulations which require impurity testing to ensure that your final product drug does not have a certain level of dangerous impurities. Well, how does that relate to medicines that are derived from plants, uh, you're not going through a synthetic process and so you're not accidentally creating molecules which could be present in the drug and could be dangerous to patients. Uh, instead, the concern is more uh, what residues could be present in the plant or developed on the plant that are going to be co-extractants as we go through the extracting and purification process. So. Uh, USP 561 is a guideline that's set forth by United States Pharmacopoeia for uh, drugs of botanical origins, and it speaks specifically about uh, things like pesticide residues. Um, because uh, anyone who's a hemp grower has probably heard that hemp is a great uh, bioremediator and a bioaccumulator. So it will draw up uh, things like pesticides from the soil which can then get concentrated in the uh, process of extraction and purification. Um, 
storage requirements uh, and storage practices in hemp farming can sometimes lead to fungal development, which can, even if there's no uh, obvious signs of mold or fungus, can leave behind toxic residues. These are called mycotoxins. Um, they're most well known uh, for having uh, occurred on grain in storage, but there's a variety of toxins that can be present when you're deriving a, a drug from a plant uh, that would not occur if you're making it in a lab. And um, there are, uh, as Dr. Knox mentioned, no uh, required testing that has to be done. And everyone that I've spoken to so far this weekend has understood that because we are marketing products directly to medical patients, uh, many of whom may have compromised immune systems um, from either their conditions or other treatments that they're undergoing, it's very important for us to, even in the absence of regulation, voluntarily submit our products for testing and uh, ensure that we're providing a clean, residue-free, and safe product to patients. A little more addition to this uh, question, I would like to elaborate that. There is still a need of a lot of analytical tools needed for this molecule if we want to see it as a drug. I try to conduct some uh, kind of preclinical in animal, and I fail to analyze uh, what, is the, uh, what is the concentration of after one hour, two hour, because it gets metabolized. And the testing or analytical tool for those met metabolites, I don't think are available at this stage. So it will be very hard to develop a drug if we don't have all the analytical tool in place because we cannot characterize it. So there is a strong need to develop those tools that when we inject it, what happened, what are the metabolites later on. So those are missing steps. Okay. All right. Well, again, we're just uh, barely scratching the surface on this subject, uh, but we're out of time. I want to open it up for some questions while we've got a minute. Uh, go ahead. study from Israel with respect to the biphasic nature that we're seeing, I mean, that's essentially umbrellaed under allosteric regulation, yeah? And if that's the case, why would I design a clinical trial that, you know, uses, I, I, I should be able to predict, right, that the isolates are not going to be able to have that horsepower. And, and, and just to come back from the horsepower perspective, if metabolites are indeed, you know, what's doing it, then perhaps we should get more medicinal chemists and uh, synthesize it up and, and test it from there, right? Yeah, I mean, it, there are a couple of fairly easy studies to design. It just requires funding to be able to definitively answer the 11-hydroxy question. Um, uh, it would be a great question to answer because, as I said, it would open up some therapeutic opportunities because so much of the aversion in the medicinal space is about THC and intoxicating psychotropism. Um, I think really though, in a lot of ways, if it's modulated appropriately, that also has a healing effect. You know, the neuroprotective harm reduction effect of the endocannabinoid system has a certain amount of wisdom. And maybe if a person has cancer, they would be better off relaxing for three to six months rather than trying to continue to work and be in rush hour traffic and creating stress and all those other things. I know that doesn't work well in our society, but I'm just looking at it from a biological perspective. With respect to the entourage effect, um, one of the areas of our research at, at Praxigen has been looking to substitute a non-psychotropic or non, uh, yeah, I'll just say non-psychotropic, non-cannabis entourage, meaning take, so we take, have taken CBD isolate and combined it in appropriate portions with uh, traditional uh, Chinese medicine preparations, specifically in the area, there's a class, you could call it a class, of uh, preparations called Dijiao that are used uh, in martial arts training, comes from Shaolin history, that sort of thing. Anyway, that entourage works very well for CBD. Um, and so it may sound 
a little bit strange, but the fundamental, uh, if you will, hypothesis is that if you have a drug, a regular drug with a pill, most of the molecules in that pill, like aspirin, 325 milligrams, the aspirin tablet is way more than 325 milligrams, there are excipients in there. And you could probably use the excipient that worked for aspirin for a different drug, because it's a vehicle. And so if we look at that entourage as a vehicle, um, then other vehicles that are effective in the same therapeutic space or with similar chemistry may be able to carry then these isolates over. So then you don't have, we, we don't experience that biphasic effect, for instance, when we put isolate in with this entourage. But this is kind of like proprietary information that we don't have all of the statistical analysis worked out. but. Uh, it has consistently worked in all of the uh, subjects, uh, and we haven't had any any failures. And, and again, it's taking two safe products um, and combining them, which doesn't always lead to a third safe product, a third safe product. But in this case, it has. So, but the bottom line being that in other spaces where there are other entourages, it may be possible to piggyback isolates onto those entourages. So from an excipient perspective, you know, I heard the peppermint as a carrier. Would you be able to, you know, uh, elaborate on that, right, in terms of, you know, I, I, when I think of these class of compounds, I think of them as pretty lipophilic, right? So in terms of, pen, you know, neural penetration, uh, right. uh, you know, just for me, I think that you know, getting a better understanding of the me metabolic profile of these compounds yeah. uh, from a reaction phenotyping perspective. But I, I suspect also there are phase two conjugations probably likely beyond, right, just SIPs. Well, well there's a whole additional space, and I don't mean to cut you off, it's just yeah. because I know there's time yeah. and I can feel people leaning forward. So here's the thing. Cannabis, as the doctor mentioned, the professor mentioned here, it's a paradigm shifter. There are some established paradigms for botanicals um, that we will even, those still have to modify. But there are lots of things that we have traditionally ignored in this space of medicinal chemistry for a very long time. Carbohydrates were ignored because they're soupy and goopy. We don't like things that are soupy, goopy, stinky, stelly, stinky, smelly, sticky, which Cannabis falls in all those categories, right? So, um, you know, if you think, just like as a quick analogy, you know, somebody who is, uh, you want to give somebody a cup of sugar. You put sugar in the cup, you measure it, you give it to the person, say, at the marketplace. Very easy, right? But a cup of honey, that's a pain in the butt, right? Because you've measured it out, you weighed it out, but then you can't get it out of the cup. you got to scoop, you got to scoop. It takes 10 times as long to serve your customer with honey as with sugar. So then we start to make these preferences. You know, I'm just not going to sell honey anymore. I'm losing money. I'm going to sell sugar. Okay. Oil is the same way. You put oil in a cup. You can pour most of it out, but there's always that residue. So oily things are not very fun to work with in a lab when you have these meticulous guidelines and things. Again, it's a control conscious culture. That's our human mainstream modern culture. We're control freaks. We don't like things we can't control. And cannabis, especially plant-based cannabis, is very much outside of control, right? So the point of all of this, though, is typically in clinical pharmacology, in pharmaceutical science, we're looking at things. You mentioned the blood-brain barrier. We're looking at plasma concentrations, all of those things, okay? So what are we overlooking in our yang imbalance? We're overlooking the soft, low-pressure, cool, wet side of reality, which is where fats are. And where do fats go? Fats like the lymphatic system. So with the lymphatic system, the lymphatic system that goes into the brain, the blood-brain barrier is not even an issue. But aggressive people like to go enter the palace through the front gate, the palace being the brain and the king and queen are back there, right, in the cannabinoid system. But the humble servant will go in through what they call the sewer, they can climb in through or go through the back door. The lymphatic system often referred to as the sewer access into the brain. Okay? So if we tap that route, lymphatic delivery, okay, a lot of these other issues go away and being lipophilic becomes an advantage. The, the comment on peppermint oil, yes, they're lipophilic, but these other carrier oils, so to speak, actually allow for better penetration, although it hasn't been completely studied on the bioavailability level, but it, it definitely is there. Uh, your question about the hydroxy-THC being more potent or less potent. So I gave a talk at Canatech in London, and this lady comes up to me, and she says, I cannot get high. 
I said, what do you mean? She says, well, I, I smoke cannabis and I kind of get high by smoking cannabis. So I said, well, I guess that's a waste of money. But then I said, have you ever gotten high from cannabis? And she says, oh yes, that one time when I ate the edible, I flew into Cosmos. I was no longer here. It was a horrible experience and that was the only time I got high which got me thinking that some people may not have the binding site for, th for THC, but they may have a binding site for hydroxy-THC. And that's, therefore, there is a fact. Now, whether it's more potent or less potent, because it's a metabolite, THC is still usually in the system. So you don't know if it's the additive effect of THC still being processed and already the metabolic uh, uh, output of that THC. So that's difficult to say maybe there's a timing there that could be defined. And I think that the important thing to know that the metabolites, edibles, cause the biggest problems from THC perspective. They don't cause problems from CBD perspective. So we're good in CBD Expo, MMJ Biz Conference. <laughs> there's, there's problems. Um, so we have to take that into consideration that maybe it's a different mechanism. Why? Uh, there's more paranoia, why there's more anxiety with edibles. And yeah, so with an, with an edible, you basically have all of the contents passing through first phase metabolism um, in, in the liver, where you then have 11-hydroxy. Uh, if you look at the clinical pharmacology studies comparing intravenous THC to inhaled to uh, edible, the relative ratio in the blood over time of 11-hydroxy to, uh, to plain THC is very different by those different routes. There's another uh, study that looks at co-administration of additional lipid. I think it maybe came out in November last year. I have it on, on my iPad if you want to see it afterwards. Um, that showed with the co-administration of lipid, I believe it was coconut oil, with an edible, they actually found that the additional fat drove the cannabinoids into the lymphatic system as opposed to going into the liver. So like I said, but because, you know, how are you going to convince a consumer, hey, have a spoonful of fat, you know, along with you. It's like everybody's like, no, fat is, is, is bad. As far as being able to isolate the 11-hydroxy effect from the THC effect, I wish I had met this woman because I think she may have a deficiency in CYP2C9. I mean, that's how we usually discover things in medicine. It's somebody who has some weird deficiency, right? She may have a CYP2C9 deficiency being the, the key isoform of the drug metabolizing enzyme in the liver that makes the conversion. So she may not be making the conversion uh, very well to 11-hydroxy. She also may be lacking the binding site, but a, a way in a general population to be able to dissect this out would be to administer, one way, would be to administer uh, the THC intrathecally. So you put it straight into the CSF, you would have minimal circulation through the blood and therefore minimal, if any, exposure to the liver. At the very least, you'd have a very long time delay, and so then you'd be able to see what the uh, psychoactivity profile is. I think we're, uh, we're really out of time. Anybody have a real burning question you got to ask? I apologize. It took all the time. <laughs> all right. Otherwise, we'll be around. Be happy to answer questions. Thank you.